Thank you, Jerry. We're going to miss you reading. And I prayed all during the pandemic that God would delay the, the construction of that home where you're, those apartments are. <laughs> but they finished it anyway. And uh, thanks to the worship team also. And Amber, that was just beautiful, that last uh, Newby Super, Super Church now. That was just beautiful. I was just the resting part. And it kind of leads us to the time of prayer this morning. Uh, I was sitting there listening and just resting and forgot I had to do something this morning. So. <laughs> Moses um, wrote in uh, Exodus 20 what God had told him. And he said, um, remember the Sabbath day to set it apart as holy. For six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your cattle or resident foreigner who is in your gates. God, Jesus said that God gave us the Sabbath to us for us. And so I want to take some time and uh, give you the opportunity to rest uh, following the song. And um, as we anticipate Easter, uh, Easter Sunday, I think it's a good time to kind of stop and be still for a little bit. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and uh, spend some time in rest and take this commandment to rest on the Sabbath. Uh, God promised us that, that we are free from the law of sin and the law of death. And so we are free. And uh, that's the reason God instituted the Sabbath, to remind them that they are free. And so if you're resisting rest right now, then it means you're a slave to something. And uh, so I'm going to invite you to just to spend some time in prayer and release that, that you are free and um, you are not a slave to this, whether it's anxiety or fear or, or guilt or shame or whatever that may be, you are free from that. And we're going to take some time just to recognize that and take some deep breath and rest. Father, we pray with the psalmist this morning uh, with, that you are great and you do amazing things. You alone are God. And we do plead that you will teach us how you want us to live in your freedom. We give you thanks with our whole heart. We honor your name. We declare this morning by your grace and your mercy that we will not be owned by sin or death or shame or guilt 
or even are owned by fear. We claim your promise that in Christ you have set us free. And so, Father, as Paul told us, we want to stand firm in that. And we reject the yoke of slavery. And we receive your mercy and forgiveness this morning. And so with that, we rest in your spirit on this Sabbath day, this, this Sunday, the first day of the week. That we enjoy you. And we let things go, at least for today. We let them out of our hands, at least for today. Our worries and everything that keeps us in bondage. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we are finishing up uh, the book of Colossians pretty soon here. Uh, Paul is beginning to wrap it up. We are still continuing on in Colossians. Uh, he's beginning to wrap things up with uh, some, some uh, instructions. Uh, and he's kind of like giving us sort of a, a kind of a send-off here. In his uh, for the next section of the of the uh, the passage, of uh, gives us kind of some instructions of crafting a rule of life, so to speak. When Jesus, uh, after the resurrection, after he rose from the dead, and before he ascended, before the ascension, he gathered together his his little group of followers, and he told them, he said, you know, God, had, the Father has given me say over heaven and earth, and he says, therefore, I want you to go and you want you to make disciples. Immerse them in the presence of the Trinity and the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I will be with you every minute of every day until the job is done. That's kind of how he left. And all we have to do is look through history and we see the result of this little group of followers who did what Jesus asked them to do. And that's, what we, that's why we're here today. Paul kind of does the same thing in Colossians. He's, he's kind of, he's gone over this. He's, he's talked a lot about wisdom. He said a lot about thanksgiving, and he talked a lot about Jesus, uh, who he is and what he's done for us. And he went on to say, this is how you were supposed to live. He, he remember the last couple of weeks, he says you need to take off these things. You need to dress appropriately because you have been called by God. You are beloved by God. You need to dress accordingly. Take off the anger, take off the rage and the slander and, and all the, 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 um, the, the gossip. Take those things off and instead put on gentleness, tenderhearted kindness, hum humility, and compassion. Put those things on. And so he's wrapping it up and now he's going to give us these values, these vows to do um, of how we are supposed to live. A lot of people hear that great commission that Jesus gave the disciples, especially here in North America, as something that kind of just applies out there overseas on the mission field. In fact, every missionary we were, every missionary that I know, and, and us included, we all had this, this, this sermon in our back pocket on the Great Commission. And so we would always go to every church and we'd preach this sermon on the Great Commission to raise support for prayer and financial support. But the idea that happened because of that is that people began to think that the Great Commission applied to church planning out there, overseas. And uh, we, even though we may not admit this, we kind of felt like, well, we've, we've got it all right. We're believing correctly. And so we need to go and plant uh, uh, Bible-believing churches so that they too will think correctly and like us. 
And we may not say that out loud, but that's kind of what we, what we feel like that's what's going on. And I think it's a great error to feel like, to think that that's what Jesus was getting at. That we need to plant these Bible-believing churches who are like us and who think like us and who, who, who run their services like us. And you can go in, and, and I, my, my, my experience is in Latin America, of course, but you can go in a Methodist church in Latin America, in Mexico, and look at, and it looks just like the, the Methodist church in the United States, where I grew up in. They do the exact same things. And we kind of get, that's kind of the idea that we're supposed to do. But I think Jesus is aiming higher, and I think Paul is aiming higher. It's not just these churches, that's not, and there's, church, planting churches is appropriate. I mean, we already spent 10 years planting a church, our first 10 years on the field, planting churches. And that's great, that's great. But I think Jesus' aim is higher than that. I think what he's getting at is that we want to plant beachheads or bases of operation where we go out and where we, 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 we put forward God's promises that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 that through his seed he was going to bless all people. And I think what he's trying to get at is we're starting these beachheads or bases so that we can do that and carry forth the kingdom of God. That's what he's getting at, I believe. And it's not just, just for our own sake. I think this is what Paul's getting at, too. And so all those instructions that he gave us up to this point in chapter 4 is not just for our own sake, just so that we have a successful life and we're content and we're peaceful and we, we have a good life. It's not just that. He's now calling us to look out and get on with the work. It's not just for our sake. It's also to go to work. And I think that's where he's going with this, this, uh, this passage and these, just these, these four or five verses here, this short passage. But each one of these things is, is so, so full of information and so full of implications and applications that really books, volumes have been written on each one. So how do we do this in one sermon? Well, we can't, obviously. So we're just going to look at, the, at some of the top heads, the top, the top uh, values here, this rule of life. And he listed, I think, four things here in this rule of life. And I'm going to put them in forms of questions. And the first thing is like, what do we do with our Christian faith to get on with this? And uh, the first thing we ask ourselves is, is my Christian faith a head trip or is it heartfelt? Is it just a head trip or is it heartfelt? And I think it's super important that Paul that we they look at the order of what Paul is getting at here. And the first thing he mentions in verse 2, he says of this whole list, this paragraph, be devoted to prayer, keeping alert with it with thanksgiving. Be devoted to prayer, be devoted to prayer, keep alert with thanksgiving. That's where it all starts. It all starts with our relationship with God. It doesn't start with an activity, it doesn't start with trying to impress others, it starts with our relationship with God. It must begin here, this prayer that's inward part, uh, that this is what he is getting at, that we are devoted to God with a whole heart. We cannot manufacture a warm heart. We cannot manufacture this. This has to be done with a, with a devotion to, to be in a relationship with God. And he says, be devoted to prayer. This is the most fundamental thing we can do. And this, if we don't do this, then nothing else happens. The problem is we tend to underestimate this, and we tend to overestimate number four that we're going to get to in a little bit. 
But Paul lists this verse, I think, for a reason. And when we talk about prayer, we're just talking basically about a request. Asking. That's, used, that's pretty much what prayer is. It's asking, making requests. And I don't think we realize the power of asking. The power of making a request. This is how people relate to one another. And Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. This is how we relate to each other. We ask and receive. This is the normal way we, we relate to God. We ask and receive. And there's a lot of power in just making a request. If you don't believe me, try eating a bologna sandwich in front of your dog. That dog looks up at you, and I guarantee you, you will be breaking off a piece and giving it to him. It is hard for us to say no. Requests are very, very, very powerful. And God expects us to make this request. The things that concern us. Now, I'm not saying that God is our cosmic butler or he is the Mr. Fix-It man or anything like that. But what I am saying is that God expects us to talk to him about the things that concern us. Sometimes I, I think prayer dies because we get the idea that prayer is to say, to make these, these flowery words and asking these noble things and these great things that we really, frankly, don't really care all that much about. But that's the thing we're supposed to do. And I think what Paul wants us to do here and in, in the rest of his letters as well is talk to God about the things that concern us. The things that, that are close to us. And I guarantee you, that circle will grow in proportion to God's love. So don't start, you know, about the big, big picture, big things out there, the big noble things. Start with the things that concern you. These are the things that we pray for. These are the things that God wants us to pray for. Dallas Willard calls, defines prayer this. this. To me, this is the best definition. Prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. And what are we doing together in our lives and he's asking us to pray for those things that are good. And he tells us three attitudes that we've got to maintain to keep our relationship with God in this, in this vibrant sort of way before we move on to, to Numbers 2, 3, and 4. He says we have to keep at it. Keep going. Don't stop. Keep going at it. Stay with it. Be devoted to it. You may ask me, he says, well, how long do I pray for this? A, a week, a year, five years, ten years? And my answer is, I don't know. Only God knows. But I do know that, that, that I have seen it, I've experienced it, and I've watched it in other people, that the people who have kept with prayer for years and years, they do start to see things change. They start to see transformation. They start to see healing. They start to see relationships come together. They start to see things, people change through these prayers of 5, 10, 15 years. And he says, stay with it, stay with it. And then he also tells us to be alert, be awake, watch for it, keep our eyes open. The person who's alert does not see, thing in this, does not, not see the world in this dualistic manner where there is sacred and secular. He doesn't see that. The person who's awake knows that God permeates everything in the world, not just some things. He permeates all things. 
And we got to think that, that um, when things are spectacular or big, that's where God is working. And yes, He is. But you know what? He also works backstage. He doesn't, uh, doesn't always work center stage. In fact, I would say most of the time He works backstage. And we have to be alert to see that, to see where God is working. Watch for Him in the, in the, in the small things. And then we will see Him in the big things. So He tells us to keep at it. Keep alert, and he also tells us to stay thankful. Stay thankful. And I don't think he's saying, hey, you know, be sure and thank God for this, and be sure and express your gratitude because, you know, he wants to, he wants to feel, he wants to feel uh, you know, um, like you know, you're paying attention. He wants, to, he wants to be, you know, he wants to feel gratitude from you, so therefore you can get more stuff. That's not it. That's ridiculous. What he's saying is that in this prayer, you will start to realize that you live under the bountiful hand of God. And the more we pray, the more we spend this relationship, you will realize that every breath is a gift from God. Everything that I, that, and there's some nights, I've mentioned this before, there's some nights I, I, I lay in the bed and going, you know, I, I hate winters, all right? But you're laying in bed and going, I'm warm. I am warm under this comforter. You know, and I have a bed, and I have a heater in the house, and that is all because God is a God of abundance and not scarcity, and I need to be grateful for that, not because I can get more, or not for, for God finally says, okay, finally, finally, I, you know, I, I do and do and do for you kids, and then this is what I get. That's not what God's attitude is. It's to say you just start to realize I live under the bountiful hand of God. And we develop that part of us, that prayerful, devoted, relational part of God before we do anything else. It has to begin here in the heart. And people who, who see Christianity as a head trip, is all in the head, they usually have trouble with this because it's too mushy, it's too touchy-feely, too emotional. What's important is what we think. And I'm seeing here the first thing Paul mentions is this devoted life of prayer, our relationship with him. It's not a head trip. It's heartfelt. And people with their heads that see Christianity in their heads, they usually have a hard time kneeling, confessing, weeping, and feeling what God wants to do for them. They're too proud. And Paul is saying, it's got to be here. It's not just in your head. Second question, individualism or partnership? Paul goes on in, chapter, in verse 3. <clears throat> he says, at the same time, pray for us too, that God may open the door for the message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may make it known as I should. What's interesting to me about this is that Paul begins his letter, if you remember, in chapter 1, he had, most of chapter 1 is his prayer for the Colossians. And now at the end of his letter, he's asking them to reciprocate. He's asking them to pray for him. That they are in some partnership here. It's not just him doing it. They're in a partnership together. Bonhoeffer called this the community 
of prayerful love. And I think that's what Paul is asking for, that we live in this community of prayerful love. And he says, you know, pray that, um, that I asked you to pray for me in the same way that I prayed for you. And he says, I want you to pray that you open the door. What door? Uh, is it the door to the Gentiles? Is, it, is he asking for the door of the prison to be open? I think all those things are possible, but I think what he's getting at is that he's open, asking God to open doors for people to receive the word and the life of Jesus Christ. And so I think he's asking us to open the door and then so that he can speak clearly. Kind of again, the idea that, that, that everybody has the different, different issues and we have to come up with new ideas and new images and new pictures to try to communicate the truth of the gospel. <clears throat> I take Paul, for example. He's traveling all over the Middle East and all over Europe. And you know he's running into all kinds of different people. And he's probably, probably a little bit insecure. How do I communicate this to, to this Roman? How do I communicate this to these people in Colossae? How do I communicate this to these, these uh, Diana worshipers in Ephesus? He says, help me to pray that I, would, that I would be able to speak clearly. And he says, notice that the focus is the mystery of Christ. It's not theology. It's not arguments. It is the person of Jesus Christ that we focus on. That's who he is trying to communicate. His grace, his mercy, who he is, that God actually visited us in the person of Jesus Christ and gave himself up for us. That's what he's asking for prayer. And this is totally countercultural. Anytime you preach something like this, something like this, it's going to threaten the powers that be. And that's what he's doing. It is countercultural, so they threw him in prison. And he knows that it's just part of being an apostle. It's part of sharing Jesus Christ. Because when you say that Jesus is my Lord, you're saying Caesar is not. And that is threatening. So he's saying, pray for me. We are in partners of this. But it's not just Paul who does the work. He says, you, are, you, are, you develop your relationship with God through prayer. We are in partners together. But it's not just me. It's you too. And he goes on to say <clears throat> in, verse, in verse 5, he says, Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders making the most of the opportunities. So the next question I'm asking, living the Christian faith, obedience or discipleship? And you may be thinking, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to obey? Aren't we supposed to obey God? Yeah, we are. We are supposed to obey. But my point is that, that if we can reduce Christianity just this crust of obligations around the gospel, then we just become dead, obedient people. It's kind of, to me, like fish, the way fish operate. I mean, when they're in the ocean, they're aware of the water, and they, they swim with the streams. They swim with the currents, you know. They don't push the current. They swim with the current, and they're moving. But you take an aquarium, and this is my beef with fundamentalism. You take aquarium, fundamentalism to me is like an aquarium, and you put the fish in there, and they do what they're supposed to do. They eat, but they, they, they look nice, they look pretty, but they're not going anywhere. They're just there. 
where God is calling us to discipleship. And my, th- my feeling is that if we are loving Jesus, if we, we develop that relationship, he said in number one, with the prayer, and we develop that, follow, we decide we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to become his apprentices, we're going to become his students, and we're going to try to live like him, the obedience takes care of itself. Don't worry about it. You follow him. He is your, he is your teacher. And we live wisely. And it, what, living wisely is not just some mental effort. It's a way of being. Words and books and stuff will not give you wisdom. If you get a little, if you get a little smart, you get a little knowledge, if it's not accompanied by humility, you're not getting wisdom. Wisdom is a way of being. We don't learn it from words and books. We learn it from experience. We learn it from love. We learn it from relationships. And that's how we learn to be wise. And then he says, we, living wisdom means you take advantage of the opportunity. Some versions say, redeem the time. And I think what he's saying here is, is take the opportunity when it's given to you. In other words, buy it up like it was on sale. If you've got an opportunity to do something good, take the opportunity. I don't think he's saying make sure every minute of your day is planned, and that's redeeming the time. I, I had this one friend who also taught at the seminary in, in, in Puebla, and this guy was the most obsessive-compulsive person I have ever known. I, I, I kid you not. He is the most obsessive person, and he, he was solely disciplined. And one time he had to take Sue to the, the doctor uh, because I was out of town, and she called him. I, th- I think you called him, I, I think. And, uh, and they took her to the doctor, and he got real antsy because he had committed to, to, share, to share so many or, or hand out so many tracts a day, and the day was, was slipping by, and he was sitting in an, at a doctor's office. And Sue said, finally, he said, you can go. You can go to the park. You're f- I'm fine. You know? <laughs> okay, okay. And he had to go and share the... And you look at his, his daytime or his calendar, and every, he had every 15 minutes planned out. Seriously. And he used to teach our students on time administration, which I would say, okay, those are some good, good ideas, but, you know, relax a little bit. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at. I think what Paul's getting at is when you see the opportunity to do good, take it. Take it. Redeem the time and take it. Leonard Cohen says, the older I get, the surer I am. He's a songwriter, if y'all don't know who he is. He's kind of a Bob Dylan type songwriter. He's, he's passed away, I believe now. The older I get, the surer I am that I'm not running the show. When you stop thinking about yourself all the time, a certain sense of stillness and peace overtakes you. And I, I, don't know if, I don't know if he's a believer or not, but those are some pretty wise words. That when you just realize that it doesn't revolve around you, okay, this world will go on without me, and we'll be okay. And just take the opportunities when it arises. And the last one, win or win over. Is my faith the faith of to win, or is it to win over? And I think this, again, the order is important. He begins with our relationship with Christ, and he ends with words. We tend to begin with words, and then the relationship comes later. Walk with God, words come after that. Words come at the end. 
I think we can divide Christians in maybe two major groups. One group likes to hunt heretics, and the other group likes to seek converts. And Paul is calling us here in this last, sec- this last verse to seek converts. He says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer everyone. Season it with salt. What you say may be true, it just may not be very tasty. And Paul says, you season it with grace, as if you were seasoning a pork tenderloin with salt and pepper. To make it taste, to bring out the flavor. And it kind of implies that, that there are answers that are different from different people. And I can just imagine Paul in his tent-making shop of soldiers and visitors and tourists and workmen and, and business people coming through wanting to buy a tent from him and him having to decide, how do I relate to this person? How do I tell this person? How do I say this to, you know, and, and make sure my, my speech is of, of grace? Christianity is this, this egalitarian faith that believes everyone has dignity but that's not a truth that we can believe and practice in the abstract it has to be with people we actually know and if you're trying to insulate yourself with people who think just like you then you're not doing what Paul's asking you to do much less Jesus he's saying to get out there to live with to avoid Offending, avoid condemning, avoid beating people over the head. He says, season it with salt. And I'm going to spend a little more time on this one just because the first one and this last one because I think these are the ones we get twisted the most. Here's some, some pitfalls and how to avoid them. Some pitfalls. Over-eagerness. That we are so eager that we become brash and arrogant to try to convince somebody. Or boring complacency. I have a formula and I have a, a track, and that's all I need. It answers all my problems, so, you know, I'm good to go. It, it, this little formula answers everything. Or easy answers. Yes, some questions are, are expected, but we think that we have easy answers, but every person deserves a respect and deserves a respectful answer. And sometimes a well-formed question is better than a well-formed answer. Easy answers is a pitfall in the certainty trap. And that seems to be the plague of our culture today. That we are so certain about everything. We would almost rather die than admit that we were wrong. That we have to be so, so certain about everything. That winning the argument is more important, even if it means losing the person. That is never more important. Winning the argument is not what, G, what Paul is talking about here. I think we need to decouple what we believe about God from our faith in God. I think those two things are do different things. That our faith in God is not the same thing as what we believe about God. That we can separate those things. In fact, if that is most important, what you believe about God is most important, I don't think that's good for healthy faith. See, the opposite of faith is not, is, is not uncertainty. 
the opposite, the opposite of faith is certainty itself. If you're certain, you have no faith. Faith is willing to step out and believe, even when you're not certain. And just admit that we're human. And I think, let me let you in on something. I think God's okay with our humanity. I think he's okay with that. I think he understands that we're pretty finite. And we will never grasp perfectly what God is like. And I think he's okay with that. So I think this certainty trap can really trip us up here. Where we end up maybe wanting to win the argument, but lose the person. And that's not what Paul wants. So how do we avoid them? Trust the gospel yourself. Trust that you are lost, you are a sinner, and you have a relationship with God based on His grace and His grace alone. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We don't all have it all wired. Just trust the gospel yourself. It's all about grace. It's all about mercy. It's all about forgiveness. Converse. Have a legitimate conversation instead of trying to close the sale. A legitimate conversation is fine. Trust that God pursues people in ways we don't know. God will pursue them. And we may not know it, and that's okay. Let him do what he is to do, and we laborers do what, we, what is ours to do. And don't cross over. So really, basically, I'm just asking for humility. That's it. I believe these are our core values. And I think values are vows also. That we, that we take the vow that is Christianity a head trip for you or is it a yearning of the heart? Are you going it alone or in partnership with others? Are you living to bring glory to Christ or to make an impression? And do you speak to bring grace or to win a fight? I think what Paul is saying here is that our lives are to be God-focused. And that carries over into a partnership with each other. It carries over how we live and then ultimately how we speak. And I think he is telling us to take your everyday, ordinary, sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and surrender it to God in devotion. And let it take care of itself. We develop the relationship, and that will affect our partnership, that will affect our life, and then finally our words. It will soften our words. So every day we do that. Wouldn't it be great if we as individual Christians and in our ministries put these into practice? Wouldn't that be amazing? Can you imagine the impact we would have on the Columbia Gorge alone? if we put these four things into practice. That's what Paul is calling us to do. This is how we construct, this is how we construct this, this 
rule of life. And here's the thing. When you surrender to God, when you surrender all this stuff to God, He brings out the best in you. And that's what I want to leave you this with this morning. The God is the one who brings out the best in you. He is the one who brings out the best in you, not us. That is a truth worth pursuing. He brings out the worst, the best if we surrender to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of this. And Father, we do want to commit ourselves to you. And we ask you to bring out the best in us. With the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.